the Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I, this, these are all rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work, don't work at all. It's it just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bowed. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to 538's Hot Takedown, our sports podcast about the week in sports narratives. Sports podcast about sports narratives with me all back in the studio together. Yep. Who was that Nate Silver guy that was on the podcast last week? Kate Fagan, welcome. Hi, Chad. How are you? Good to be back. Good to be back. Are I you still in Los Angeles last week? Oh. I still am. Excellent. Yeah. What were you doing in LA? A writer's conference. Oh, did you, yeah. was it, were you teaching or learning? I was on a panel. I wasn't really Paneling. teaching. That's, yeah, it sort of doesn't have I any. was learning from my fellow panelists. Good. Excellent. And Neil Payne, back in the house. Hey, Chad. How you doing? Doing good. Sports feeling writer at 538, of course, Neil. Feeling great. Yeah. You're, you're rested. Yeah, I'm well rested. Vacation. Had a staycation here in New York. Excellent. Uh, so on today's show, we're going to talk about the Patriots and whether we should already give them the undefeated title of the NFL, that they're going to go 16-0. Skip Bayless seems to think so. Uh, we're also going to talk about quarterbacks and whether uh, they, when you lose a, a really good quarterback, your, your team is doomed. We're also going to talk about the Nationals, which my favorite talk radio host has been calling the Crashnals on WFN. Um, and we're also going to talk about the National Women's Soccer League. But first... Walt Hickey is in the studio. Walt, welcome. What up? How's it going? Walt, <laughs> for the last several weeks, regular listeners of Hot Takedown have gone on a journey with your avatar as they've tried to beat Madden, the video game, with you as their quarterback, with your stats as, as measured by EA Sports. And I believe you're here for an announcement. Yes. Uh, the, the trials of Hercules are over, okay. and we have two winners. We had two people eventually win the Super Bowl in Madden 2016 with me as quarterback. Uh, huge shout-out to uh, Tim Curry and Luke Barr. Uh, they answered the call. They eventually showed up. And when I was behind center for the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles, I was able to win a Super Bowl, unlike every other Philadelphia Eagles quarterback. Well, you are, no. you are, a, you are a Giants fan, are you not? I am a Giants so how fan. How does it feel? to have won the Super Bowl with two of your arch rivals? Uh, I would say bittersweet at the same time as I still managed to parlay it into trash talk. Uh, Neil, for instance, how many times has the Philadelphia Eagles won the quarterback, won the Super Bowl without me as quarterback uh, versus how many times have they? That's right. So, I mean, you have a perfect record in that regard. And you wore number five. Is that right? I, I think I saw a yeah. screenshot. You wore Donovan McNabb's number to win the Super Bowl for the Eagles. Yeah, and so, you know, that feels good, all right? It may not have been with the New York Giants. And this year, I doubt that I could have done it with the New York Giants. But you know what? Uh, we're trying to innovate this into trash talk. So, Walt, I believe that you have a GIF, Kate. I just want to make sure you see a, a picture of Walt winning the Super Bowl. And if you could narrate what that looks like. It's a picture of what of Walt's journey, really. Walt, can, can you show that to Kate? Yeah, please. Yeah. I, yeah. I would love a... to see this. This is great. 
Oh, wow. So just narrate what you're seeing for the, for the listeners oh, well, at home. Well, first okay. it's Walt um, lo- seemingly on the practice field throwing sort of a wobbly four-yarder. And then it fades into Walt, who appears to have lifted a lot of weights and yeah. gotten very cut in a short period of time. And let's see, wearing an Eagles jersey and lifting the Lombardi trophy, wow, well. holding up. A number one, at your pointer finger in your in your left hand. I believe it's That's pronounced hoisting, the Lombardi hoisting. trophy. So was this something where they kind of squeaked out these wins with this style and you sort of barely won? Or was it something where they got so good at it that they, and they acquired, you said they acquired new players even, did they load up on running backs and was that part of the strategy? Yeah, no, so it didn't seem to be a lot of, so for instance, let's talk about the Cowboys win, right? Uh, so what Barr did was essentially he finished with an 11-5 and record, second seed, first round bye. That's that pretty good. Seems pretty crucial getting that buy in because every game could go horrifyingly wrong. Uh, so Joseph Randall led the league in rushing with 1,700 yards, uh, and they essentially uh, they got free agents Alden Smith and Terrence Newman, uh, traded a draft pick for a cornerback, uh, and essentially, my quarterback rating of forty-two point six uh, was wow. not the lowest in the league. Thanks, Matt Flynn. Uh, and <laughs> uh, yeah, so of the eighteen hundred yards or so that I threw, fourteen hundred were gained after the catch. <laughs> so it's really just kind of about like getting like like I'm a game manager, right? Okay, I see the players and I let them work. So, well, what are what are the winners going to take home now that they have scaled the heights? Right. So this is part of the prize, right? Getting a shout out on, uh, on this wonderful, wonderful podcast. Uh, and the other element of this is that they are going to get a, a poster of me in Madden gear that, that I have signed. Uh, so essentially be, there's no prize. It, well, you know, no, it uh, should you be know. one of those fat heads, you know, those things that you stick on the wall or yeah. whatever. Like I want a decal of you, Walt, that, that can go up on my wall. Oh, I do too. If we're doing this, we're going to Kinko's and we're getting a couple of extra copies. Cause... All right. Well, thanks for coming in and talking about the Madden Challenge. Did you ever think you would do it? Did you ever think you would win the Super Bowl? No, I did not. I thought that this would just kind of be, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on for the past couple weeks. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. You didn't need to wear the rings in here, though. (laughs) No, no, yeah. And and to get two, too, even though it happened within the same season. I know. Yeah, you know, it's uncustomary, but we felt it was appropriate. (laughs) Excellent. Thanks, Walt. You can read Walt Hickey's wrap-up and more about the exploits of Tim Curry and Luke Barr on our website, 538.com now. And you can see that gif of Walt hoisting the Lombardi trophy, as he called it. Now, before we get to our first take of the week, let's do Concussion Watch, where we, which we do every week, and it's a way to sort of take a step inside the numbers, and we see all these numbers, about, uh, all these statistics about the number of concussions that happen in the NFL, but we often forget that there are people behind them, uh, and so we just like to, to sort of do a tally a little bit. By my tally, which uses ESPN's uh, weekly injury database, there were three extra um, concussions that were added to week two after the fact. That brings us to five in week two, and there were four concussions thus far. In week three that I could find, uh, they were Jacob Tam of the Falcons, Jermon Bushrod of the Bears, Xavier Rhodes of the Vikings, and Jeff Cumberland of the Jets. So, in total, we have 16 concussions thus far this year through three weeks. Now let's move on to the Patriots. I, I rare, I'm on the receiving end of many hot takes now that you know we do this podcast. I rarely have been sent the same hot take three times in 24 hours, which is what <laughs> happened when... Skip Bayless said this on ESPN recently. Molly, Stephen A., I, I don't want to jinx my Patriots by saying they're going to go 16-0. <laughs> I'm just going to say it's extremely likely. It's extremely probable they will go 16-0. My favorite part about that is the chuckle in the background as yeah. Skip is delivering the hot take. Can we remix that and add it? You want it to the top of the show? Yeah. 
That's, that's nice. Remix it. Wait, you it's want double candidate. skip or you want to replace the other skip? Oh, no, it can't replace. Skip. We're going to double. Okay. Soon the, just the whole thing is going to skip yeah. this. Uh, okay, so extreme, what was it? Extremely probable, I believe, was the, was the line. Yeah, Neil, well, as, as certainly Batman, doesn't know what how that would means. you parse extremely probable? And are the Patriots indeed extremely probable to go 16 and 0? Yeah, uh, so, you know, in statistics, uh, one of the standards that people would use for what, what would be considered an extremely probable event would be something that had like a 95% or greater chance of extremely happening. extremely probable to me. Yeah, it's it's not exactly guaranteed. Nothing in life is guaranteed, but something ninety five percent extremely probable. Uh, and I really don't think you could find any justification to say that the Patriots going sixteen and zero is ninety five percent likely, fifty percent. Is it likely. extremely improbable? Yeah, I think it's uh, by most measures that you would look at, uh, and we even did some number crunching too for this. It's extremely improbable, in fact, that they would go undefeated on the season. How improbable? So while we uh, looked at ELO ratings, which is our pet metric here uh, for team strength here at 538, and uh, we found that there was about a 4.4% chance that the Patriots would go 16-0 and during the season, which is actually quite high. This Patriots team is really good this early in the season. They're probably a shade worse than that 2007 team by ELO, but uh, at the same time, you know, that team went undefeated, and this team could conceivably make it happen, but still, a 4.4% chance is extremely improbable, in fact. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that this team is, like, slightly off pace with the 2007 team, and I think primarily, if you look at their defensive numbers, they've given up, like, 600... No, they've given up, like, 1,100 yards, whereas in 2007, through three games, they'd only given up 660. So it's clear that that differential, too, is on the defensive side. But as far as the probability, like... I think I learned this when we were talking about the Kentucky Wildcats team in the NCAA tournament. I mean, as much as you see a team and you see how great they are and you think that they have a clear path to win something, that was eye-opening for me when when 538 did the win probabilities for the, for the Kentucky Wildcats because I thought it would be something more like 60 to 70%. And they were 40%. And that which was, was only six. They, they only needed to win six games yeah, to make and, that happen. And that was... Not 13. Exactly. And that was even extremely high win probability for, for them. What I like about undefeated streaks is that it's it's a place where the stats and the, the narrative, if you will, really match up. It feels really special when someone goes undefeated. We talked about it with the Wildcats. And it's also and the stats say it's also really special when, when you go undefeated because it every time you step out, no matter how good you are, whether you're Serena Williams and you have weak competition below you or not, you, there's still a twenty percent plus chance that you're gonna lose. And that means that you have a real shot of losing over and over and over again. And it compounds really quickly, like because you're multiplying your odds of losing in in each game together, and and it uh, you know sort of expands exponentially the more games that you have to go without losing. Uh, that's why it's so tough, and that's why I think it's kind of preposterous to suggest that this team will go sixteen and zero. And then people will say though they'll be like. Well, look at their schedule, and you can't find a loss just because you're like, oh, well, on week 13, look, they're playing Miami. I can't look at their schedule. I can't see a loss. And it's like, well, that's a that's a terrible way of deciding that they're going to be undefeated, right? right? Well, because it, it compounds the assumptions instead. You're assuming one after another, and then all of a sudden 
that means only one thing has to go for the whole tower to fall. Right. Yeah, like you kind of have these fractional loss probabilities. So even if you're above 50% in every single game that you have left in the season, the Patriots are probably that way. Maybe only the game in Denver uh, is is one that they might slip up in um, and not be favored. That, uh, you know, those fractional probabilities are what catch you in the end. Like, uh, you know, a 40% likelihood of something happening will happen two-fifths of the time by definition. And if you're trying to count on that not happening again and again and again in a row, you're eventually probably going to lose. So before we move on to the Cowboys and the Steelers and their quarterback injuries, I just want to re-extend and standing invitation to Skip that he's welcome on Hot Takedown anytime. And we're really excited to engage him in a statistical debate with his um, more, uh, how do we say, uh, anecdotal uh, instinct, instinctual approach towards yeah. sports analysis. Can we, can we auto-tune it? When the we, whole the whole podcast yeah, the whole. <laughs> just remix the whole thing. I mean, maybe extremely probable to him is like um, two to four percent. Right? Maybe chance. we're misinterpreting the, the, the language. Yeah, there's a language gap. So let's move on to the Cowboys and the Steelers. The uh, Tony Romo is out for eight weeks with a broken collarbone. Ben Roethlisberger went down for four to six weeks with some type of MCL injury, and all of a sudden the the panic has come. There's also Drew Brees who's hurt. You know, Smith quarterbacks are falling left and right. Let's listen to a montage of panic out there in the media. Ben Roethlisberger will cure your ills. Well, he's gone now. So now what do you do moving forward? You have Michael Vick. Michael Vick can't cure your ills. Again, they lose Dez, and now they lose Romo. Just a disaster. Brutal. Brutal. Drew Brees, it's official. He's out. So it's Luke McCown. Good luck with all that. (laughs) Wow. So Neil and Kate, everyone, this has to be just sort of a made-up panic right that like one player can't be this important or does this link back to our other conversation uh, about mvps and uh, where, where players matter in, in the various leagues i mean i, I want to hear the numbers because i do get it as a fan of a team feeling like your qb when or if he goes down is panic mode because of what we're taught about the qb position so i get it and i kind of almost want neil to ground us in the numbers <laughs> about how that really is a panic that you should just make us sober on. Neil Please. yeah I mean it, uh, the quarterback is the face of the team we always talk about how important they are um, I think kind of the archetypal example of a team totally falling apart without their quarterback is Peyton Manning goes out 2011 Colts and they're just nowhere near the same team and that's the fear that all of this stuff is playing off of but when you actually look at the numbers and you can come at it from a couple different ways and and we did this where uh, you can just try to isolate the quarterback's own production and sort of like slot him out and put in you know some backup some scrub quarterback in place and his production and uh, when you lose a quarterback like a Romo or Roethlisberger, that type of quarterback is worth maybe two and a half wins over 16 games. And in this case, these guys aren't missing 16 games. They're probably not even going to miss half the season. So really, it only comes out to like uh, one extra loss over the course of the season if you were to simulate it out a bunch of times. And then one sanity check for that is you can look back at history and look at teams that actually did lose their quarterbacks. And, you know, Peyton Manning in 2011 is one of those data points, but then there's a lot of data points like, you know, some like Matt Castle in 2008 coming in for Tom Brady where the team didn't totally fall apart. They still won 11 games and almost made the playoffs without Tom Brady. Uh, and, and when you do that, the typical starting quarterback is worth about a win 
per 16 games. And that matches up really with what you would expect if you took the tack that I talked about just a second ago of looking at replacing that production and slotting in some kind of scrub in place. So it really doesn't seem like it's as big of a loss as uh, it's made out to be often in the media or or among fan bases. So you say that, Neil, but a win in the NFL is a lot, right? And so... If if a team finishes with ten wins instead of nine wins, that that could be the difference between the playoffs and not. Yeah, and the thing is, uh, when we're talking about this, especially for teams like Pittsburgh, maybe like Dallas, we we had this conversation, I think, with uh, regarding Tom Brady and the suspension that we thought he was going to have in the preseason. Is that these wins that are taken away when your quarterback is out? They're on this somewhat steep. I guess the steepest part of the of the playoff, you know, Meaning probability it's the most curve. Whether you finish with eight, nine, or ten wins, right? Yeah, like each marginal win in the area in which you're sort of in flux between this backup and your star quarterback is going to add more playoff probability than, say, if you're tacking on your sixth win of the season versus five or your twelfth win mm-hmm. versus eleven. Which is why we don't care when a Jaguars quarterback goes down necessarily. It's really right, about it these things that, that might be good. Yeah, right. and it comes in that like eight to 10 win range where one win or even like a half a win can you know have outsized impact on your playoff odds Um, and and it also feels like at least if i'm thinking at it from a fan perspective and how i might feel as a giants fan if eli wasn't was injured is how to quantify like the upheaval as well because you're going from a guy that you had pinned in there as your starter and you're leaning on a backup who obviously hasn't gotten as many reps in practice. Of course, they're keeping these guys ready, but there's a distinct difference between that. And then also the same on the end of when he gets back and he's healthy, bringing a guy back in who has missed the kind of rhythm. And it's hard to quantify like what the upheaval is as well. Right, and I think that's a real effect because when ESPN Stats and Info were developing this metric that they call Football Power Index before this season, they had never done it for the NFL before. So they did a bunch of research trying to figure out which factors are really predictive for a team's success. And one of the things that they found was that you know even after controlling for the talent of the team and the talent of the quarterbacks involved – you could have uh, replace uh, one quarterback in one season the the next season with a quarterback who's exactly as good and your offense would still suffer because of the lack of continuity and quarterback is the only position that they were able to really even find like a demonstrable effect on offense where like if you don't have that continuity and you lose a guy uh, you're going to see a loss of production no matter what so th- there's definitely something to that but theoretically that would also be picked up when we're right. looking at these histories of teams that lose quarterbacks it's interesting because you hear a lot about how receivers and quarterbacks have chemistry, right? They spend all off season going to work out together. They like they go pitch by, and catch. Yeah, in the, exactly. In the yard yeah, they, they buy the, late night pizza yeah. or someone takes somebody out to dinner, and all of a sudden that means that 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 um, Victor Cruz and Eli Manning have found their chemistry again, or something like that. And that suggests that there is some statistical evidence that that, that really does matter. And I guess it intuitively makes sense. You know, even doing this podcast, right? We, we're much better now about anticipating each other's uh, ins and outs than we were in week one. Yeah, that's right. Why'd you talk over me there, Kate? You should have anticipated. No, everybody's uh, all discombobulated. Now we're all ed- now. Uh, yeah, we're oh, all sorry. On the edge right oh wait. Now. Okay, now let's turn from football to baseball, and I swear this is not a Mets segment. It kind of is, though. But we it are going really to talk is. about the Nationals. <laughs> so the Nationals, as of this taping, are eighty and seventy-six. There are six games left in the season. They are eliminated from playoff contention uh, by a team that shall go unnamed. Um, the 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 amazing emblem of their season happened over the weekend when Jonathan Papelbon 
choked Bryce Harper in the clubhouse or in the dugout rather. Um, let's listen to Tim Kirchin's reaction to that choke job. A guy who's been on the team for less than two months right. should not be doing this in public like this. Can't have this, especially when you're a team that has struggled as badly as the Nationals have. So he should be doing it in private. Okay, th- thank you. I was <laughs> going to say, the- let's just all acknowledge <laughs> that doing it at all is probably the flawed. That that creates a hostile workplace yeah, environment, sorry. I think. Yeah, you should report <laughs> that to HR. Yeah, it's I an hope HR, Bryce Harper clear HR, HR violation. <laughs> so that it reminded me of this headline I saw in USA Today uh, recently. Like amateur chemists, nationals imploded after Papelbon experiment. Wow. That's an incredible headline. Oh, that is tortured, yeah. <laughs> uh, so is this is this sentiment that the USA Today thing and the shaming of Papelbon right, is is the nationals collapse because of Papelbon? Right. Well, no. No. Right. I'm sure Neil has some like plenty of other reasons for this epic collapse. Yeah. Um, so one thing you have to give credit to the Mets. I, I don't know if we weren't supposed to talk about. Oh, them we will. This, I mean, do but you okay to do that, Chad? I'm, I'm so overcome with joy that I actually okay. can't speak about. Let's just take a minute and credit the Mets because you know, I mean, a moment, of, cele- been... a moment of silent celebration. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The Mets. Uh, if you go off of Fangraphs. Uh, dot com and they do these preseason projections that uh, they exceeded expectations. The Mets did by 11 games, and the Nats kind of. Uh, undershot expectations by 11 games. So it's almost like, who do you, do you blame the Nets or do you credit the Mets? It's like 50-50 because uh, one, you know, exceeded and one fell short. But to get back to Kirchner's point, is Papelbon the problem here? Because no. Rob Arthur, uh, 538's baseball writer, wrote that it was the hitters that really underperformed. That if you look at the at the wars, also you can project not just records, but also players' like contribution to a players. team. Yeah. And the wars are pretty stunning Bryce Harper way overperformed his war projection. He was supposed to only produce 4.1. He produced 9.7. So he created an extra five and a half wins on his lonesome. And they still wasted it. And Jason Worth and and then Jason Worth swallowed it whole. Yeah. As a former Philly native, well Neil, and then I I covered the Phillies when they won the World Series, and Jason Worth was was pre-hair Worth, right? Uh, yeah. Or he was a caveman, I he think. Had the, he had the beard oh, and yeah? everything okay. back then. Uh, so, but Neil, is, is it right to blame the hitters as, as Rob suggests? And, and Papelbon, while he hasn't been great, but it, it seems like it's much bigger than Papelbon. Yeah, it's way bigger than him. I mean, uh, you can blame Jason Worth, you can blame Anthony Rendon, you can blame Ryan Zimmerman, Doug Fister to go to pitchers. Steven Strasburg has never really materialized into the ace stud that he has looked at times like he could be. And it's uh, it's really an indictment because, like you mentioned with Harper, it's such a gift to get a player that first of all puts up the season that Harper has because he is putting up a season that ranks among the all-time great seasons like we talked about Mike Trout a couple of years ago had one of these years Harper has had one of those years and it's it's so unexpected that he was not supposed to be this caliber of player at least not at this stage of his career certainly not almost into the minors last year yeah and and for him to put up this kind of season if all you knew about the national season was that Harper had exploded into this MVP type of player, you would think not only they're going to win this division by you know ten games, they're going to win it by twenty games. Uh, and so for them to still blow it, it really does speak to all of the other players. And it's not—I mean, Papelbon was only there for a couple months. These guys have been struggling pretty badly all season long. 
I mean, and part of the storyline, especially down in D.C., has been Matt Williams and right. what type of blame a manager, this specific manager, deserves for the kind of season the Nationals have had. I mean, that brings up the interesting question about inability or any way to define and quantify how a manager's decisions affect a, a team in a win and wins because it's kind of like you whatever decision the manager makes you'll never know the outcome of the other decisions that he could have made so it seems like an impossible thing to quantify but the one thing that I've noticed with Williams is he seems to like make decisions that go by whatever the book is in Major League Baseball as opposed to kind of taking calculated risks at certain times and deviating from what common wisdom would say in, in capitalizing in those moments, as great managers sometimes do. Yeah, and, and it's really tough. I'm One of the kind of nuts that Sabermetrics hasn't cracked yet is how do you evaluate a manager? And one of the things we've done in the past is to kind of not look at those small decisions that are made in every single game, but kind of just say, given the amount of talent that you were handed to work with, did you live up to expectations? Uh, and it's a little circular in this case because we just got done talking about how Matt Williams – uh, by this definition is a horrible manager because he was given talent to win like 90 to 95 games and has badly underperformed relative to that. But when it comes to the small decisions that are made in the games, I don't think anyone's tried. So but why can't we, for example, like accumulate all the different decisions that a manager makes when, when it comes to pinch hits, pinch runs, bring someone in from the bullpen, shuffling starters, whatever, and, and talk about, how that affected win probability in each decision is that are, am i thinking about it the wrong way because it seems to me like if you pinch hit let's say bryce harper had an off day if the bases are loaded and you bring bryce harper as opposed to bring in a replacement level player because you want to keep harper rested all day long that's a decision that has real effect on win probability no yeah, no, I think so. Uh, I think the problem there is just trying to make sense of all of the options that are at the mm. manager's disposal. And it kind of makes me think of chess, oddly enough, where there's these incredibly powerful computer artificial intelligences that sort of tell you what the quote-unquote right move to make in any given situation is. And you can sort of judge chess players as to how well they match up to this sort of uh, very you know hyper-powerful decision-making tool of a computer. And you can even suss out cheaters, but, uh, people who are playing too close to uh, the moves that the computer suggests. And so it makes me think almost like in baseball, could you take like MLB The Show or Out of the Park or one of these video simulation video games, uh, which have artificial intelligences built in and sort of play out like what would the computer have done in that situation mm. and then measure a manager compared to that. But then it comes to like you mentioned, Kate, the book. What kind of book are these artificial intelligences programmed to follow? And a lot of times, Bill James, uh, going back to him, he harped on this uh, in, the, in the 70s and the 80s that managers don't always make the win-maximizing decision, and uh, we see this in not just baseball, but in football and various other sports. So it's kind of a tough question to answer. But one thing, uh, just to go back to the measure of you know just using the broad, did you disappoint given your talent level, it also bears mentioning that you know there was a, a 20% chance, given the Nationals' projection before the season that they would finish with 83 or fewer wins which is what it looks like they're going to end up with according to uh you know the playing out the rest of the season using a power rating or what have you so this isn't like 
you know, a, a massive, uh, you know, underperformance in the sense of we would never expect a team projected to be this good to have this kind of season. Actually, it does happen from time to time if you look at the history, and maybe it says something about our projections that we shouldn't be that surprised when we peg a team to win like 95 games in preseason and they only win 83 games. That that happens. Our projections aren't good enough to to say that it should only happen like 1% of the time. It could happen like 15 to 20% of the time. So when I think about the Nationals and, and going forward, it seems to me like if they were projected to win, what was it, 95 games yeah. coming into the season, what do you do if you're GM of a team like this? Do, do, do you use stats to say, well, if we bring back you know, these 20 players, they're going to project us out to, out to 92 wins, even though they are part of a team that's so badly underperformed? Are you supposed to think about like, whether there's rot in the center of the clubhouse or something, or you just go stats still? I mean, I would, if I was a Nationals fan, I would want slight changes, but I would want the heart of everything back. Because like we've talked about, it, so much of this seems to be a specific scenario that played out throughout this year that was partly luck, partly a Mets team that overperformed. And if you came back with the same guys, maybe minus Papelbon, <laughs> you came back with the same guys next year, the stats would s- still project out that you would be likely to make the playoffs again. Yeah, and that's what's so frustrating about baseball when trying to kind of suss out what is signal and what is noise, to borrow a a Nate Silver thing, that uh, the uh, fan graphs looked at this and they had this thing that shows like how many runs you're supposed to score uh, and allow based on the timing of events. And about half of the Nationals' underperformance was just because of this, you know, they didn't time their hits right. They came, they they weren't very timely with runners on base or they came, you know, with... uh, uh, in blowouts, but they didn't come in close games. And a lot of that, in fact, almost all of that doesn't persist between seasons. And in fact, a huge portion of over or under performance versus projections also is very inconsistent from season to season. So you could conceivably play out this 2015 season again from the beginning and the Nats would, you know, win the NL East, uh, probably more likely than not to, even given the talent levels, like it would probably be close between them and the Mets now, certainly closer than we thought back in April. But uh, it talks a lot about the luck in baseball and the fact that it's so difficult to tell what will persist and what won't. Okay, so for those of you watching the video, thanks for watching the video. For those of you who are listening, for everyone actually, you can go read Rob Arthur's piece on the Nationals at 538.com. For those listening, stay tuned. Let's move on now to National Women's Soccer League, whose final is on Thursday. FC Kansas City and the Seattle Reign face off. Of course, we cannot talk about soccer of any kind without Allison McCann. Allison, welcome back as ever. Hey, Chad. So first, I want to get to the take of sorts. It's Vlatko Andonovsky, head coach of FC Kansas City, who on the Mixed Zone podcast said this. What I think it's going to come down to is uh, one mistake, one little thing, you know, a restart or, or one individual brilliance. So uh, it's hard to predict what, uh, you know, which way the game is going to go, but uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be another good show for the fans. So, Alison, I'm especially interested in this idea of it going to be another good show for the fans, as he said. Has the NWSL been putting on a good show for the fans since the Women's World Cup? Is there? It's always tricky when we talk about women's sports because there's such a dearth of data compared to men's sports. But do we have any numbers about uh, attendance or about competitive balance or anything like that? Yeah, I think 
if if we're going to use attendance as our metric for putting on a better show, I think absolutely we've seen um, – you know, attendance has been, we, we talked a little bit about right after the World Cup, that bump, that nice bump that we were seeing. And I know we all sort of said like, oh, we'll be curious to look back at this in a few months and see if it's, you know, flowed through the rest of the season. Um, and it has. The The regular season ended a few weeks ago and average attendance was up about 23% from the previous season. Um, that's around 5,000 per game, which you know gives us that crazy between Portland's 15,000 mm-hmm. average to, you know, New Jersey's 1,000 average, but it, it, it was up for every team except Western New York, and I think that is really indicative of, you know, just the World Cup generated more fans in general, and now those people are tuning in to the NWSL. And when you talk about, like, the spikes, I guess, in attendance from one place to the next, I mean, you can see that replicated time and time again across women's sports in almost every professional league you look at, certain times in the end. WNBA, like Houston Comets when they existed, would sell out. And then you'd go to other places when Miami had a team and their attendance was really low. I mean, same with college basketball. You've you've got these hotbeds, Tennessee being one, of course, you, UConn being another where you sell out. And sometimes it leads to even more confusion about why it's able to happen in one spot and not another. It's like this glimmer of hope, like with Portland. And then, but you then you struggle to actually pull out exact. Is it just magic, right? Like, what are the common factors that lead to creating a space where people attend women's sports? And it's hard to replicate, but you always have this evidence that it's possible. So, to me, the really interesting part about women's sports leagues beyond just their continual fight for for <laughs> attention and 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 um, and equality is that it's you know the men the men's sports leagues are so entrenched that we we sort of think of them as these monolithic hegemonic figures in, in American life. But for a women's sports league um, that's trying to just start out, it really does matter whether or not there's a quality of, um, to me it matters whether there's a quality of, of attendance or not, um, or, or of quality of play rather, because you need to keep it spread out, or unless I'm misunderstanding Kate, what, what you just said, but like it matters that things are robust or, 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 or healthy in a bunch of different spots, um, because you can't just have a Patriot-style team in the NWSL right now because then the other fans won't show up. No, you're right. Exactly. The point was like you see places where not only are there dominant teams, but that usually comes with high attendance. And that is great. And you want to support that. But until there's some level of parity and, you know, you'd almost rather see like I'd rather have 10 college basketball teams that drew 10,000 a game you know, then have UConn sell out every every game and not be able to replicate that anywhere. And it's the same for the quality of play. Like, if the goal is to have a league that's sustainable, you need a model where you don't just want to show as a fan, you don't just want to show up to the one game where they play the one team. You want to show up every night. But I think it's interesting uh, just looking at the past couple of years, and this is going to be a rematch, right, Allison, of the of the previous year's uh, championship, that Seattle is actually kind of one of these dominant teams. I mean, they have like a plus 50 goal differential over the past two years, and the second best team is Kansas City with only a plus 19 goal differential. So they're far and away the best team and have been the past two years. And yet last year they didn't win. They got upset. And, and that almost is a is a recipe for fan interest i think to have the storyline of the two best teams facing but the one who was the underdog ended up winning and this is redemption perhaps so you know sto- i think building narratives and storylines like that is also like a great way to foster fan interest Allison, i was also reading a piece in the guardian i think by howard megdal about how the NS- nwsl maybe had squandered 
I think it was they called the World Cup victory lap. Um, that that we had all this momentum built up coming out of the uh, Women's World Cup, US won, um, and that the NWSL, I think his his stat point or his data point was that it didn't have any new sponsors. They weren't able that despite all the players having new sponsors, that they weren't able to bring it to the league. Is that a fair criticism? Do you think? Absolutely. I mean, I I think sponsors is one way to look at that, and that is very detrimental. But if we do look at TV rights, I guess, is another thing if we're sort of cherry picking these metrics for mm-hmm. uh, failing to exploit, um, you know, the games were not televised last year and now we have the playoffs televised. So but I do agree that there hasn't been as much as you think they would have. Um, you know, the the victory tour games were not in NWSL cities. That seemed like an easy way to maybe you like, you know, on Saturday was the victory game and on Sunday is the NWSL game. And you're in the same city. They didn't seem to do any of that. Um yeah, and I think people have been really critical of this uh, commissioner, Jeff Plush, because he hasn't been uh, very outspoken for the league with these opportunities. He was at the um, victory parade in New York City and didn't say anything on the podium. The MLS commissioner had to get up and kind of be like, and also go to the NWSL. So um, I don't think he's been doing the best job of of putting the league up uh, next to U.S. soccer. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think that's like – failing to exploit all the things it just it didn't seem there could have been a lot more synergy there and like historically even if you look at the WNBA's relationship with college women's college basketball which often has a bigger spotlight than the WNBA there's been less synergy there throughout the existence of the WNBA than than one would have hoped in the same way we might have hoped for more synergy between the NWSL and the World Cup but I think also and this is something I talk a lot about with um, people who are agents to women's athletes who and, and you know they represent female athletes who are Olympic athletes and then they represent female athletes who play a team sport and sometimes those things overlap but sometimes they don't and the one thing they always talk about is that you can get any meeting you want if you are talking about the Olympics or the World Cup you cannot get the same meeting for women's team sports and so Part of this is like you hope that NWSL is being as creative as possible. And part of it is this assumption we're making that like, oh, well, if the World Cup got that, the NWSL should be able to get that. The U.S. soccer can call Nike and any company and they're going to be, we want to work with you. That door is not open in the same way for team sports leagues and female sport athletes. I mean, it's hard to dissect why that is exactly, except patriotism driving you know, mm-hmm. Olympic and World Cup that just does not exist in the same way for the NWSL. People are rooting for the jerseys, not the players wearing the jerseys. Yeah, and the NWSL has to, I mean, the same way that the NBA has to find a way around the lack of the patriotism that's not going to be driving their sports. It's an interesting sort of mental exercise to imagine Alex Morgan on a commercial for, I forget, I've seen her all over the place, I feel like. But, yeah, McDonald's. Um, yeah, it's not a commercial for yeah. McDonald's wearing her NWSL jersey right. instead of her U.S. Women's National Team jersey. You sort of can't. Imagine that they would do that. It's almost – it would be like – you know how sometimes um, athletes will show up in commercials, but those commercials haven't bought the rights to the league jerseys or something? Mm-hmm. So they're just wearing like a nondescript red and yellow jersey or something. Well, wait. You know, that's well, LeBron James. He's a cab, but yeah. don't think cabs on a jersey would feel like that, I think. <laughs> right. Myself. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Super strange. I don't know why. Like, exactly. It's a tough hurdle for the NWSL and the same with the WNBA and some other leagues to clear is the lack of patriotism that's driving mm-hmm. fan and sponsor mm-hmm. interest. Interesting. Okay, so let's leave it there. 
you can watch and presumably read Allison's tweets on Thursday night as she as she as she watches uh, the NWSL final. And um, Allison, will you just stick around and go seamlessly right into significant digit? We don't Let's even have to go it. fetch you. Let's do it. Okay, Allison, you every week bring a significant digit, which is a telling number from the world of sports. What have you brought for us this week? Uh, Sig digit is nice and easy. It is one, uh, which is the score that the Lynx beat the Mercury last night in the WNBA uh, semifinals and on a very controversial foul. Uh, nonetheless, that um, the league actually issued a statement today saying uh, that was wrong, which is the thing that I feel like you don't normally see. But yeah, uh, the Lynx will now advance to the finals on that one point win, 72-71. Yeah, I mean, that call as we all talked about, is just a call you don't make regardless of league, whether it's college or NBA. I mean, it's kind of like an agreed-upon moment where it's like you're under three seconds, especially when the game is in transition, and Maya Moore is nowhere near close to being able to make a play, a scoring play. Right, and referees always have this attitude of not letting themselves, not inserting themselves into mm-hmm. the game at one of these Except crucial Except Ed Hockley junctures. sometimes. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, and stat, the stat head take on that has always kind of traditionally been the, you shouldn't, uh, that not making a call is uh, is the same as making a bad call, like, you know, kind of, the, it's, a, it's a sin of omission. But in this case, it was hard to see where the foul was and, and why the whistle was blown. And, and it's just frustrating, too, I guess, as like someone who, wants women's sports to succeed and here's a moment where you could have gone to overtime and had like an epic five minute overtime to decide who goes to the end the WNBA finals. Saying that we want more narratives and things to talk about in women's sports. Totally. Isn't this like something just, that will actually eat up some some time you on would some think, yak fest on You ESPN? would think so, but I didn't see it. Right. I didn't see it. But I know what you mean, but you kind of hope that it's driven then by protagonists that you actually want to get to know. So you're like, oh, my more is always... But that's not what that was about. Okay, tonight is game three of of the Eastern Conference Finals, Liberty versus the Fever. There's a really good uh, piece on 538 about how the Liberty um, are sort of counter to the analytics trends in the NBA and how they shoot threes differently um, than you might expect a really good NBA team to do because Mm -hmm. threes mean something different than WNBA. Anyway, go read that. Go watch the Liberty and the Fever. Allison, thanks as ever. Thanks for having me. And that will do it for this week's show. Kate Fagan, thanks as always. Thanks, Chad. Neil Payne, thanks as always. Good to be back, Chad. Our podcast producer is Jody Avergan, whose own podcast, What's the Point?, continues to burn up the iTunes charts. Our video producer is Ryan Antel. We get production assistance from Jordan Shulkin and Lois St. Jacques. Our intern is Sarah Patterson. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com. We would love to hear what you think. There have been some really good emails coming in. Thank you for those. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Downcast, all sorts of other apps. We're on iTunes. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and rate the show while you're there. It helps others discover this very program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chad with Matlin. Talk to you next time.
Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio.